0: Welcome to The Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 263. Today's topic is Sanity. Sanity with an S. We're going to talk about Sanity. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please email info at theclimatereport.net, and you can visit my website at theclimatereport.net. So let's talk about sanity. So Hart Hagen is uh, trying to bring about sanity, and you know, sanity sounds boring, but what's the alternative? The alternative is insanity, and insanity might not be boring, but it's kind of scary, and you really don't want to go there, and you don't want to, you know, you don't want to Um, live with a family that's insane if you can keep from it and you don't want to be in a community that's insane if you have a choice and you don't want to be in a country that is insane if you have a choice and you don't want to be part of a species that is insane if you have a choice and you don't want to be part of an economic system that is insane if you have a choice and you don't want to be part of a political system that is insane if You have a choice. So let's talk about what sanity really looks like. And I can tell you this, that insanity and conformity are two different things. Because sometimes people say they want you to be normal, but that means conformity. And sometimes conformity is insane because it's like lemmings rushing to a cliff. You know, you don't want to go there. You don't want to go in that direction. If everybody else is running over a cliff, you don't want to be among them. In fact, you would like to say, hey, let's not go over that cliff. So last time I was talking about how we should reduce by 90%, reduce the following things by 90%, like reduce defense by 90%. Reduce industrial agriculture by 90%. Reduce new cars by 90%. Reduce new planes by 90%. Reduce helicopters by 90%. Now, some uh, some people might say reduce helicopters by 90%. What harm are helicopters doing? What, what harm are helicopters not doing is really the question to, to be asked. What harm is airplanes doing? Well, what harm are airplanes not doing? If you really want to ask, you know, airplanes have a whole lot of metal, a whole lot of electronics, a whole lot of plastic. All that stuff is toxic. Then it takes, you know, it pollutes the air, it pollutes the water. So, can we talk about how we can have less of that and more of the things that we really want? So, let's talk about some more things that it may sound insane on the surface, but really what we have is insane, what's normal is insane, so we need something way different from our current normal if we want to be sane. So for example, no new buildings. No new buildings unless there's a really good reason for it. So let's reduce new buildings by 90%. Why do we need all these new buildings? What are we building all these new buildings for? Well, you know, we need some McMansions, right? But, you know, if everybody in the world had a McMansion, there are not enough planets in the world for everybody to have a a McMansion. There are not enough planets in the world for everybody to have an an American-style home in the suburbs, and maybe that's not what we really want. I mean, how would you like to have most of your time back. You know, we, we spend this time slaving away for stuff that we don't really need. But we're all caught up in the rat race, we're all caught up in the process. So, so whether it's a, a McMansion or whether it's an upscale apartment, you know, how much resources are you, you have all the drywall, all the bricks, all the electrical wiring, all the copper that goes into the electrical wiring. You have wood you have you know, plastics that go into all this stuff. You have specially made glues that go into all this stuff. You have aluminum. You have steel. Lots and lots of stuff gets manufactured to go into all of this new construction. And where is it getting us? Is it something that we really want? If we look at what it really costs us, do we really want that? Do we really want to go there? Next item no new roads. Why do we have all these new roads? Why are we building more new roads? Why are we building more new roads? Well, because we need urban sprawl. Urban sprawl is what we need. But do we need urban sprawl or do we need what we think urban sprawl does for us? So urban sprawl is supposed to be good for the economy. And urban sprawl is supposed to give people a place to live. But you know what's really you know, is urban sprawl the only you know way to give people something to live so here let, let me tell you a secret the most of the big decisions that are made in our economy are made on the basis of profit and wealth accumulation but does it need to be that way do we need to have a system where most decisions are made on the basis of profit so Here's the thing, COVID-19 caught us off guard. COVID-19 caught us by surprise. Why, why, why did COVID-19 catch us off guard? Why did COVID-19 catch us by surprise? Because preparation for COVID-19 is not something that happens because of the profit motive. Our healthcare industry is busy making a profit. Pharmaceutical companies are busy making a profit. When you're busy making a profit, you can't be bothered doing things that people actually need. Sometimes what makes a profit is what people actually need. More often than not, making a profit is quite different from what people actually need. So all the drugs that are developed, are they developed because they're what people actually need or are they developed because it makes a profit? Well, if you have for-profit pharmaceutical companies, then it's all about profit. It's all about wealth accumulation. It's all about stock value. It's all, let's make the value of our stock go up because that's why we're here. But there's a big difference between making the value of your stock go up and actually doing things that are good for people. Next item, no new pipelines, or at least reduce new pipelines by 90%. Why? Because pipelines carry fossil fuels. We don't need, you know, we're going to, in the foreseeable future, we're going to be consuming some fossil fuels. But do we need all this new stuff for fossil fuels? Do we need lots and lots and lots of new pipelines? So guess who it was that bragged about about producing more oil than um, more oil than any country in the world? Barack Obama bragged about producing more oil than any country in the world because of the fracking boom. Fracking is this whole big new technology which helps us go into the ground and extract even more oil from the ground in a toxic polluting process with secret toxic chemicals. But we're not going to talk about that. We're just going to talk about how we're producing more oil than anybody else in the world, any other country in the world. This is Saudi America. This is independence. This is energy independence. You know, as if we need energy independence if it means extracting lots and lots and lots and lots of oil through fracking. So you, if you extract lots and lots and lots and lots of oil through fracking, what you need is pipelines, not just for the oil, but also for the gas, natural gas. So the topic of this show is sanity. And can we talk about how it is not, how it is not sane to build lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of new pipelines, and that's, yet that's exactly what we've done. President Obama bragged that he had built more new pi- enough new pipelines that they could circle the globe. Actually, he was being modest. We in his administration we built enough new pipelines to circle the globe 7 times. So, is it sane to build so many new pipelines that you're encircling the globe 7 times? Here's one thing it's not just about carbon. It's not just about carbon. These pipelines are built of lots and lots of metal. They require lots and lots of concrete. and you, you have lots and lots of toxic chemicals that are made in the process, that are produced, that are needed in the process of coating these pipelines with whatever they need to be uh, coded with and so why are we doing that? Is it because we're being sane or is it because we're being insane? And if it's because we're being insane, maybe it's because you know we've got the wrong people making decisions for the wrong reasons. We've got the wrong people making all of our decisions for all the wrong reasons. When you make decisions on the basis of profit time after time after time after time, then you're making it for the wrong reasons because profit does not equal what people need. What people need is not always exactly equal to profit. In fact, usually profit is the opposite of what people need because you know when decisions are made on the basis of profit it's just you know you get lots and lots of pipelines that's what you get you get pipelines that carry natural gas and oil and they're for the purpose of making somebody a profit but they're toxic to the environment they're bad for the water they're bad for the air let's talk about air Fracking makes air quality go way, way down. Fracking makes poisonous air. Why are we making poisonous air? Is it because we are sane or is it because we are insane? And if, it, and if we're insane, it's not your fault or mine or the fault of individuals. It's because we've delegated all the decision making power to a very few people at the very top and they're making decisions in all the wrong ways with all the wrong results for all the wrong reasons so let's not do that so we've covered three things so far we've said no new buildings no new roads and no new pipelines or at least reduce new buildings by 90 percent we're going to need some new buildings but we could reduce it by 90 percent and it would have no negative impact whatsoever on the actual needs of actual people in fact if we reduce buildings by 90 percent it would have a positive impact on actual People, because these things require materials and materials you know when you when you manufacture materials there's a lot of pollution when you manufacture materials so let's stop doing that so no new buildings or at least reduce them by 90% no new roads or at least reduce them by 90% lots and lots of urban sprawl like we need that urban sprawl does not meet human needs and we're making it for making those decisions for all the wrong reasons. And no new pipelines, Let's or reduce new pipelines by 90%. That's how we would get to sanity. So we've talked about no new buildings, no new roads, no new pipelines, or at least reduce new roads, new buildings, and new pipelines by 90%. Now reduce corporate acquisitions by 90%. So. What do I mean by corporate acquisitions? I mean, okay, monopolies, we need to stop monopolies. You know, when monopoly, we have lots and lots of monopolies. I mean, you know, monopoly, mono means one, but a monopoly is not just something that has one firm that you can have four or five firms in a market and you still have monopoly because the number of firms within that market is so small that they can kind of watch each other's Price signals and they can adjust their prices accordingly. They can adjust their services offered accordingly so that they're not providing such stiff competition, but they can still make a profit. So, you know, what bothers me most is the tech monopolies like Facebook. Why did Facebook buy WhatsApp? So WhatsApp is an app. Why did, why was Facebook even allowed to buy it We shouldn't, you know, know, if, if you want to stop companies from getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, then once they get to a certain size, there should be a strong presumption that you cannot buy other companies because when you buy other companies, you are buying out the competition. And one instance where this happens is when companies are allowed to buy out, uh, you know, like fossil fuel companies are allowed to buy out this or that you know, solar company. And, and they say, oh, we're buying this company, so we're green. Well, maybe they're buying it so they can shut it down. Or maybe they're buying it so they can go real slow on the solar or the wind or whatever it is they're buying out. But, you know, we need to slow down on the corporate acquisitions, especially ones that, you know, we need to acknowledge that it's possible for a company to get too big. We have allowed corporations to, to just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, like fast food. Think of fast food involves huge corporations, and the bigger a company gets, the more skilled they are at shifting their costs on to the public so you know a single hamburger takes lots and lots and lots and lots of water to produce and the purpose of fast food chains is to make it really efficient to do what they do and efficiency sounds good but you know if something isn't efficient killing machine, then well, that's not the kind of efficiency we're looking for. And if something very efficiently uses up all of our water so that we don't have clean water anymore, well, that's not the kind of thing we want to be doing. if something very efficiently causes deforestation, then that's not the kind of thing we want to do. And yet when, you know, so there needs to be a limit on how big companies can get. And here's one way we can do that, and that is draw a line around Jefferson County and say "We this is our county. We live here. The businesses that locate here have to locate here as a result of our permission. So we're going to have something called local sovereignty. And we're going to say the people of the Jefferson County, Louisville, Kentucky, get to decide what businesses locate here. So McDonald's, Taco Bell, we already have like 20 restaurants here, fine, keep what you've got, but you're not gonna have any new restaurants here until you satisfy us that you have an ethical and sustainable supply chain, and you have ethical and sustainable business operations. That's, you know, that's how we could stop companies from growing so darn big. You know, there was a time in America when it was understood that chain stores are bad, at least from the perspective of the small local business, chain stores are bad. Now, there may be a time in which we, the people of Jefferson County said, ah, we want a Home Depot here, but we don't want 10, or there's probably, what, 5 six home depots in Jefferson County. So, you know, we're going to have that one of those here, but we don't need 5 home depots because not but just because we the people get to decide such things. So, you know, that's one way of going about it, and it's unfortunate that we have given up control of our local economy to these big corporations that can just come in and have their way with our economy. They can come in and have their way with our labor. They can come in and have their way with our roads. They can come in and, and have their way with the technology that it takes to put these businesses in place. So let's reduce Corporate acquisitions by 90%. I mean, let's let's say, you know, no new corporate. You know, if your company is so big, it's not going to get any bigger. Or at least we, the people of our locality, get to decide how many new stores you, you can put here. How many new locations can you put here? We, the people of Louisville, Kentucky, get to decide. It's not your decision. It's our decision. Decision. Here's another thing. So we've talked about no new buildings, no new roads, no new pipelines, no new. Oh, we, do we skip cars? No new corporate acquisition. So no new predatory lending. Why do we have predatory lending? Why do we allow big for-profit? And you know, one form of predatory lending is credit cards. So why do we allow predatory lenders to charge you know twenty-five? interest rate, why do we allow that to happen? So let's stop that. What we need is, you know, we need a public banking system for one thing. And you know, public banking system can do, could perform every legitimate function that the private big banks can do. You know, a public banking system. May or may not be subsidized, but it, it would be a place where we could put our money in a deposit account and then that money could be lent out in, in order to uh, provide legitimate functions for banking. You know, banking has legitimate functions like lending money to small, local, sustainable businesses or lending money for home loans. You know, a public bank could do all that stuff but but would not have the for-profit mandate that private banks have. So let's, you know, let's eliminate predatory lending or at least reduce it by 90%. And one big way of doing that is to have public banking. So public banking has been available for a long time in North Dakota. It's the only state as far as I know, that has statewide public banking, but they recently uh, adopted it in, I think, Los Angeles. And they, in order to have a public bank in Los Angeles, they had to change California law to do that. Because guess who is opposed to public banking? And it's the private banks. It's MB&A. It's Goldman Sachs. It's whoever makes money charging people exorbitant interest rates. It's usury. It's a its criminal from a moral standpoint, though not a legal standpoint. So let's eliminate predatory lending, or at least reduce it by 90%, and the way we do that is to have private, you know, to have public banks. So let's Reduce new construction by 90 percent. Reduce new roads by 90 percent. Reduce new pipelines by 90 percent. Reduce corporate acquisition by 90 percent. Reduce predatory lending by 90 percent. Reduce new cars by 90 percent. So, in the foreseeable future, we're gonna need cars. Most of us, almost all of us, need cars to get around because that's what we've got, but we can reduce new cars by 90%. We can, we should and if we're sane, we will because this is a show about sanity. Let's talk about sanity. So the thing about cars is you know you have people get electric cars and like check that off the box. I, I you know, especially if it's a Tesla, it's like I'm doing my part to for the environment I have an electric car you know actually I can appreciate an electric car <laughs> because for one thing they're really quiet on the inside and you know I, I can appreciate the aesthetic value of an electric car but it doesn't mean that it's ecologically sustainable because according to you know an economist by the name of Richard Smith who to me is a credible source he says, you know, 60% of the pollution associated with a car happens before it rolls off the assembly line. So 60% of the pollution of a car is a result of the manufacturing process and all of the transport, all of the mining, all of the processing, all of the materials, all the assembly, all of the, uh, you know, the processing of everything that goes into a car you've got metals like aluminum and you've even got you know, you've got aluminum you've got iron and steel and you've got you know synthetic tires and you know synthetic everything you've got electronics all this stuff that goes into a car and they're getting more and more high-tech all the time and all of that technology takes resources all of that technology takes um, you know, it causes air pollution, it causes water pollution, it causes pollution to people's bodies. Whether they're the people that work on the cars or the people that live in the neighborhood where the cars are manufactured or live in the neighborhood where the car parts are manufactured, somebody's getting polluted when you make cars. So sixty percent of the pollution associated with a car occurs before it rolls off the assembly line. And then, so, you know, you would think that an electric car and an internal combustion engine car are roughly equivalent in terms of how much pollution they cause, you know, in the manufacturing process. And therefore, you know, an electric car doesn't take that much less resources than an internal combustion car. An electric car does not cause that much less pollution than an internal combustion car because they all got iron and steel. They've all got, you know, who knows what kinds of synthetic processes, who knows how much copper they have in them, who knows how much lithium they have in them, who knows how much coltan and cobalt they have in them. Lots and lots of stuff goes in these cars. In fact, nobody really knows how much uh, is required for uh, even a computer, let alone a car. So let's reduce new cars by 90%. Reduce new cars by 90%. So we've talked about no new buildings, no new roads, no new pipelines, no new cars, no new corporate acquisition, no new predatory lending, or at least reduce these activities by 90%. One last one. Let's reduce subsidies for fossil fuels by 90%. Why are we subsidizing our death? Why are we subsidizing our demise? Why are we subsidizing our destruction? Why are we subsidizing fossil fuels? I think you'll agree with me there's no really super good answer to that. That's about all the time we have. Thank you for joining me. Have a great day. Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 264. Today's topic is Biden, the climate warrior. So I was reading through Biden's climate plan. If you Google Biden's climate plan, you can find it online. I was reading through it and it said, Joe Biden is a climate change pioneer. And this is from a a website called PolitiFact. claims that Joe Biden is a climate change pioneer. So I looked into that, I have a few thoughts on it, and we'll go from there. So what it says is that Biden set up a task force to examine how the federal government can mitigate climate. This is back in the 80s in the Reagan administration. It also says he, uh, you know, it's about setting up task forces, it's about certain things that he's done in his career related to agreements to set aside tropical rainforests by forgiving debt in uh, third world countries. It's about certain speeches that he's given related to climate change and the need to address these issues for example, at one point Biden said, life on this planet exists only under highly specialized circumstances, Biden said during a Senate session. Indeed, so special are these circumstances that even a small rise in temperature could disrupt the entire complicated environment that has nurtured life as we know it. So those are nice words, but you know, it's rhetoric. It, there are token actions token legislation, token resolution, without ultimately revolutionizing the system that we have. So if your rhetoric and your proposals are all about tweaks around the edges, then I'm not sure you can be called a climate change pioneer. So here's some more rhetoric in Biden's climate plan. It says, the United States urgently needs to embrace greater ambition on an epic scale to meet the scope of this challenge. Our environment and our economy are totally and completely connected. If we can harness all of our energy and our talents and unmatchable American innovation, we can turn this threat into an opportunity to revitalize the U.S. energy sector and boost growth economy-wide. We can create new industries that can reinvigorate our manufacturing and create high-quality, middle-class jobs in cities and towns across the United States. We can lead America to become the world's clean energy superpower. We can export our clean energy technology across the globe and create high-quality, middle-class jobs here at home. Getting to 100% clean energy economy is not only an obligation, it's an opportunity. We should fully adopt a clean energy future, not just for all of us today, but for our children and grandchildren so that their tomorrow is healthier, safer, and more just. As president, Biden will lead the world to address the climate emergency and lead through the power of example by ensuring the U.S. achieves 100% clean energy economy and net zero emissions no later than 2050. He's talking about establishing an enforcement mechanism that includes milestone targets no later than the end of his first term in 2025. In other words, by the end of his first term in 2025, we will have milestones that won't be the ultimate realization of goals to be attained by 2050, but will be you know, a, a, a significant milestone, a significant mileposts along the way. And he's talking about incentivizing the rapid deployment of clean energy innovations across the economy, especially in communities most impacted by climate change. He's talking about building a stronger, more resilient nation. On day one, Biden will make smart infrastructure investments to rebuild the nation and to ensure that our buildings, water, transportation, and energy infrastructure can withstand the impacts of climate change. Every dollar spent toward rebuilding our roads, bridges, buildings, the electric grid, and our water infrastructure will be used to prevent, reduce, and withstand a changing climate. As president, Biden will use the convening power of government to boost climate resilience efforts by developing regional climate resilience plans in partnership with local universities and national labs for local access to the most relevant science, data, information, tools, and training. It says the Biden plan will make a historic investment in our clean energy future and environmental justice paid for by rolling back the Trump tax incentives that enrich corporations at the expense of American jobs and the environment. Biden's climate plan and environmental justice proposal will make a federal investment of $1.7 trillion over the next 10 years, leveraging additional private sector and state and local investments to total to more than $5 trillion. President Trump's tax cuts led to trillions of dollars in stock buybacks and created new incentives to shift profits abroad. Joe Biden believes we should instead invest in clean energy in a clean energy revolution that creates jobs here at home. The Biden plan will be paid for by reversing the excesses of the Trump tax cuts for corporations, reducing incentives for tax havens, evasion and outsourcing, ensuring corporations pay their fair share, closing other loopholes in our tax code that reward wealth not work, and unending subsidies for fossil fuels. Continuing to read from the Joe Biden Climate Plan, Joe Biden, here's a title, a heading that says, Joe Biden, a climate change pioneer. Biden has long appreciated the enormity of climate change and has always believed that we have a moral and economic imperative to address it. In 1986, he introduced one of the first ever climate bills in Congress. PolitiFact recently called him a climate change pioneer and dubbed his early leadership a watershed moment. So to read this, you would think that Biden is really, you know, has been a leader from way back in you know, a watershed moment. That means like a major change in direction for our federal government, thanks to Joe Biden. As chair of Foreign Relations Committee, he organized several hearings on climate change and rallied support on a number of non-binding resolutions on the issue in an attempt to build momentum for action to address global climate change. In 1998, he was a key champion for the Tropical Forest Conservation Act, which allowed, us, which allowed the U.S. to reach agreements with foreign governments to conserve tropical forests in exchange for debt relief, commonly referred to as debt for nature swaps. In 2006, Senator Biden took executives from BP and Chevron to task for subsidies going to the industry. As vice president, Joe Biden oversaw the Recovery Act, the largest single investment in clean energy in U.S. history. The Obama-Biden administration placed historic limits on carbon pollution, doubled fuel economy standards for cars and trucks, unleashed the potential of renewable, clean energy, and rallied the world to achieve the groundbreaking Paris Climate Accords. I'm going to continue reading from the Biden Climate Plan because it's good rhetoric. It really is. It's just that we have to look at the difference between rhetoric and reality, but let's enjoy the rhetoric for a minute. So uh, the Biden promise is science, not fiction. So reading from the Biden climate plan, this is quoting the fourth national climate assessment. It says, humans have released an increasing amount of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere through burning fossil fuels and to a lesser extent, deforestation and land use change. This change has intensified the natural greenhouse effect, driving an increase in surface temperatures and other widespread changes in Earth's climate that are unprecedented in the history of modern civilization. Continuing to read from the Biden Climate Plan, humans' contribution to the greenhouse effect is indisputable. Top climate experts, including the authors of the fourth National Climate Assessment, and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Special Report have all concluded that human activities are estimated to have caused an approximate 1 degree Celsius rise in the Earth's global temperature to date. Excessive CO2 emissions caused by human activities, such as the burning of fossil fuels, have contributed to a severe exacerbation Of a natural phenomenon known as the greenhouse effect. This natural occurrence takes place when solar radiation directed toward the Earth reaches the atmosphere. The atmosphere reflects some of the radiation, but approximately 70% of the radiation is absorbed by the land and water, thereby heating the Earth due to the additional greenhouse gases emitted by humans, such as carbon dioxide, water vapor, methane, nitrous oxide, and chlorofluorocarbons, more heat than normal is being trapped, contributing to an overall rise in global temperature. If the global temperature continues to increase at the current rate, and surpasses 1.5 degrees Celsius, the existential threat to life will not be limited just to ecological systems, but will extend to human life as well. We have already begun to witness the impacts on biodiversity and the ecosystem. As species loss and extinction have disturbingly accelerated as the result of increasing ocean temperature, shrinking ice sheets, rising sea levels, and much more. As the effects of global warming worsen, human health, livelihood, food security, water supply, and economic growth will be jeopardized. It is incumbent on us to implement a plan in order to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and begin to combat the consequential long-term and short-term effects of global warming on both the environment and on humans. Let's continue reading from Joe Biden's climate plan because this is good information. I, I could critique it, and I will. I could poke holes in it, and I will. I could push back on it, and I will. But as far as it goes, it's true and scientific. So let's continue reading. Shrinking ice sheets the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets have decreased in mass Data from NASA's gravity recovery and climate experiment show Greenland lost an average of 286 billion tons of ice per year between 1993 and 2016. That's 286 billion tons of ice per year when you're talking about tons you're talking about a lot when you're talking about billions of tons you're talking about a lot even from a big ice even from a big island such as Greenland Antarctica lost uh, 127 billion tons of ice per year during the same period that is 1993 to 2016. The rate of Antarctica ice mass loss has tripled in the last decade. Continuing to read, Glacier glacier Retreat. Glaciers are retreating almost everywhere around the world including including the Alps, Himalayas, Andes, Rockies, Alaska, and Africa. So glacial retreat is important because typically glaciers melt gradually. They tend to accumulate ice and snow during the winter months and then in the spring and summer months, they tend to melt, and that provides a steady supply of water for humans, for personal use, for agriculture, for, uh, for watering livestock, and not least of all for ecosystems. So glaciers provide that steady supply of water, and we are seeing that go away the glaciers are going away. The ice caps on top of mountains are going away from the Himalayas to the Andes to the Rockies. You know, ice caps from mountains are going away. It says here global sea level rose about eight inches in the last century. I'm, I'm surprised by that. I thought it was much less than that. But it says global sea level rose about eight inches in the last century. The rate in the last two decades, however, is nearly double that rate. That must be a typo. The rate in the last two decades, however, is nearly double that of the last century and is accelerating slightly every year. number of record high temperature events in the united states has been increasing while the number of record low temperature events has been decreasing since 1950. the u.s has also witnessed increasing numbers of intense rainfall events so what does biden propose to do related to climate change it says here you know item number one out of about four or five major sections in the Biden climate plan. Item number one says we're going to ensure the US achieves 100 percent clean energy economy and net zero emissions no later than 2050. It says the United States must have a bold plan to achieve 100 percent clean energy economy and net zero emissions no later than 2050 here at home. On day one of his administration, on day one Biden will sign a series of executive orders that put us on this track and he will demand that Congress enacts legislation in the first year of his presidency that number one establishes an enforcement mechanism to achieve the 2050 goal including a target no later than the end of his first term in 2025 to ensure we get to the finish line. Number two, we're going to make a historic investment in energy and climate research and innovation. Number three, we're going to incentivize the rapid deployment of clean energy innovations across the economy. Failure is not an option. If Congress falls short of its duty, Biden will hold them accountable. It says here, on day one, Biden will use the full authority of the executive branch to make progress and significantly reduce emissions. Biden recognizes we must go further, faster, and more aggressively than ever before by doing the following things. Number one, requiring aggressive methane pollution limits. I would point out that if you're, in, if you're serious about methane pollution limits, then you're going to shut down fracking. And, and you're going to monitor the uh, emission of methane from you know, oil wells, gas wells, fracking wells, pipelines. This is simple, basic stuff. That's why we need regulators. That's why we can't do without regulators. That's why regulators not only help the environment, they, but they, you know, they take, it, it's a job. It's a job. You want to create jobs, you increase regulation. The, uh, you know, the neoliberal, Washington consensus, pro-free market crowd says you need to deregulate if you want to increase jobs. But actually, regulation increases jobs because if you're gonna have regulation, you need regulators, that's a job. And and then within the company, you need people who are going to help comply with regulations. So regulations actually increase jobs. So it says here we're going to use the federal government procurement system Which spends $500 billion every year to drive towards 100% clean energy and zero emissions vehicles. Uh, For one thing, I I really doubt that they're going to do that, but if they did, would that be altogether a good thing? You know, if we're buying uh, electric vehicles from Tesla and Tesla is buying lithium from Bolivia, and you know, are we going to be supportive? Of human rights in Bolivia are we going to be supporting the democratic pro majority government in Bolivia or are we going to, to support the uh, the fascist uh, white minority in Bolivia plus all these electric vehicles and all technology See, technology is not categorically a good thing. You have to look at the side effects of technology, especially if you're talking about electronic technology. All electronic technology requires metals. It requires aluminum. It requires coltan. It requires cobalt. Uh, These are metals that are mined by slave labor. I don't know about aluminum mining. But when you have rare earth metals that are being mined by slave labor in places like the Democratic Republic of Congo, you know, it doesn't help the slaves in Congo for us to be buying a lot of cobalt. We need to have monitoring that says, look, we're going to buy your cobalt, but it has to be, you know, there are certain requirements that go along with that. You want us to buy your cobalt? We need human rights. We need minimum wages. We need health care for people. We want to know that people are being treated with the dignity and respect that they deserve. It doesn't do any good to scale up electric vehicles or solar panels or windmills if all the technology that's going into them has lots and lots of impact that nobody is measuring and nobody is paying attention to. It says here, we're going to ensure that all U.S. government installations, buildings and facilities are more efficient and climate ready, harnessing the purchasing power and supply chains to drive innovation. So, you know, that's that's a good idea as far as it goes. But are we are, are we taking, you know. It doesn't do any good to spend a lot of money and resources on buildings that shouldn't exist to begin with or buildings that are currently being used in industries that should not exist to begin with. So they're talking here about taking federal buildings and making them energy efficient etc installations, buildings, and facilities are more efficient and climate ready, harnessing the purchasing power and supply chains to drive innovation. Well, that's fine, but what about buildings that are in the Defense Department? You know, what about a building whose purpose is to store bombs or to manufacture bombs? Do we really care? about energy efficiency if the building is used to make bombs or is used to make warplanes or is used to make naval ships or is used to make uh, submarines that we don't need. You, know, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. If there are certain industries that should not exist to begin with then it doesn't help anything to make them more energy efficient. What we ought to be doing is eliminating those industries if there are certain sectors of our economy that are grossly mismanaged then what we don't want to do is to make them more energy efficient what we want to do is revolutionize those industries for example in agribusiness if you have buildings that support Monsanto then you know Monsanto is just a terrible company that you know you know agribusiness the way it is is just a, a terrible uh, industry and it needs to be completely reformed. So you, you, you have lots and lots of monocrops, you use lots and lots of pesticides, lots and lots of fertilizers, there's lots, of, lots, of, uh, lots and lots of uh, you know, uh, water pollution that goes along with agribusiness such as it is Your agribusiness needs to be completely transformed. It doesn't do us any good to have energy efficiency in a sector that is fundamentally broken. So let's talk a little bit more about the sectors and industries that are fundamentally broken and need to be eliminated or revolutionized. So let's talk about the the war machine. We're talking about Biden's climate plan, and it says Biden is a climate change pioneer. Meanwhile, Joe Biden is, uh, he, he voted for NAFTA, which is terrible in terms of clim- climate. You know, NAFTA means let's put globalization on steroids and let's favor transnational corporations vis-a-vis local businesses. Let's favor uh, transnational agribusiness giants vis-a-vis small local farms. Let's, uh, m- let's favor foreign manufacturing as opposed to domestic manufacturing. Let's drive two million Mexican farmers out of business, and they knew this was gonna happen. They knew this was gonna happen. If they didn't know this was gonna happen, their eyes and ears were closed. Cl- Clinton, uh, Biden in the Senate, Clinton, Gore, when they were president and vice president, they knew all this was gonna happen, and then uh, Obama wanted to do TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, when we had 25 years, uh, we had roughly 20 years of NAFTA behind us to show what were gonna be the impacts of NAFTA, or to show what were gonna be the impacts of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but Obama wanted to charge full steam ahead on it anyway. So Biden supported NAFTA. And NAFTA is a climate disaster. How can Biden be a climate pioneer when he's supporting NAFTA? How can Biden be a climate pioneer when he's beating the drum for the Iraq war? Joe Biden was one of the most aggressive hawkish people leading up to the Iraq war and he basically was one of the people who lied us into the war by saying Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. They all knew it was a lie, or if they didn't know they were they didn't want to know. Plus, the military industrial complex is terrible when it comes to carbon. It's terrible when it comes to environmental pollution. This is a sector of the economy that supports 800 foreign military bases around the world. It's a very high use of carbon. It's a very high uh, incidence of environmental pollution. These are places, this, this is a sector of the economy that bombs localities just for target practice. You know they're doing target practice with their tanks and they're playing with their weapons and bow, bow, bow. Let's, let's, let's just bomb a hillside for the heck of it you know sometimes killing uh, local civilians so you can't be a climate pioneer if you're supporting the military industrial complex the manufacture of ships the manufacture of planes the manufacture of tanks uh, all of this the manufacture of helicopters all takes a huge toll on the environment, it takes a huge toll on our carbon footprint, it puts a huge dent in our carbon budget. You can't be a climate pioneer if you never push back against the military industrial complex. Another thing is you can't claim to be a climate pioneer unless you're putting people first. So example, you know, Medicare for All would be an example of putting people first. For one thing, 70% of Americans favor Medicare for All. So how does that relate to climate? Well, you know, we have people working harder than they should be working because they are supporting a corrupt, top-heavy health care system and if climate were a foremost concern, then we would have Medicare for All so that people wouldn't have to work so hard, so that people wouldn't have to drive so much. When people work harder, they drive more, and that has a, uh, puts a big dent in the, the carbon budget. When people work harder, they have to buy fast food, and that puts a bigger dent in the carbon budget. Anybody who claims to be a climate pioneer needs to put people first. That means end the wars. That means stop building prisons. That means stop putting people in prison for nonviolent drug crimes. It means giving us Medicare for all. It means giving us a universal basic income. It means uh, actually having strong unions and not just giving lip service to strong unions. That's about all the time we have. We're gonna talk about Biden's climate plan on future uh, episodes. Thank you for joining me. Have a great day.